0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's Best Hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
0: Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see
1: the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. Hello, it's Steph here. I hope you enjoyed listening to our latest episode of The Rest Is Money. We've got a bit of a bonus for you actually this week because you know Robert's been banging on about his new book that he's got out. Well, he's going to read you an extract from it. So this is his book, Bust, Saving the Economy, Our Democracy and Our Sanity, which is uh, co-written with Kishan Correa. And in it, they explore whether the west has gone bust economically politically and socially and if you've been enjoying all of our deep dives into the state of the economy then this is definitely one for you so in it robert and kishan ask about whether the chaos of the last few years marks the end of the old order as we know it and then they're looking at what will and should follow if we want to save our prosperity democracy And our sanity, which I think we all need right now, don't we? They really get into lots of questions that we need answers to. And you can, of course, buy it in any good bookshop. Uh, So there you go, Robert. You got the recommendation you wanted from me. So buy the book. But first, have a listen to this. Enjoy this extract of Bust read by Robert himself. Take it away, love.
0: Chapter 2, Bust in a Nutshell We've known since at least the banking crisis of 2008 that the system isn't working as it should for the West, for the United Kingdom, for you. The political explosions since have seemed important as they happened, but have done nothing to reverse decline. In 2010, voters kicked out a Labour government that had been in office since 1997. In 2016, they voted to take the UK out of the European Union. In the 2017 general election, substantial numbers, 40% of those voting, backed the most left-wing Labour Party of modern times, whose leader Jeremy Corbyn was promising to nationalise on a scale not seen since the late 1940s. In the 2019 general election, a whopping 43.6% voted for a Tory party whose leader, Boris Johnson, promised to get Brexit done and to level up the country. All of these votes were a different version of the same song, one that demanded a new direction for the country. Voting for Corbyn and voting for Johnson were different choices, usually by different people, but they were both rejections of a status quo that was failing. According to analysis by the Financial Times, in 2007, the average UK household was 8% worse off than its peers in northwestern Europe, but the deficit has since ballooned to a record 20% deficit. On present trends, the average Slovenian household will be better off than its British counterpart by 2024, and the average Polish family will move ahead before the end of the decade. The lack of earnings growth is acutest in the public sector. Only those in the private sector are now earning a little more in real terms than they were before the 2008 crash. One way of seeing the squeeze on the pay of doctors, nurses, teachers, police officers and the rest is to look at their position relative to private sector pay. According to analysis by the Institute of Fiscal Studies, public sector employees earned on average 19% more than private sector employees in 2011 at the onset of George Osborne's public sector squeeze, austerity this is not altogether surprising. Public sector workers are typically educated to a higher level and have more advanced skills than those in the private sector, on average. Even so, last year, the gap between public sector pay and private sector pay had fallen to just 7%, the lowest margin between the two categories since 1993. And if adjustment is made for the differential skills of public and private sector workers, there is now zero difference between the sectors which is unique in modern times. It's not just that the UK is falling fast down the International League table of living standards, much of the fabric of the state is fraying. Statistics on how little crime is being solved by the police are, well, criminal. According to the Casey Review, the most important police force in the country, the Metropolitan Police, is institutionally sexist, racist and homophobic. There are 7.47 million people waiting for elective care from the NHS, up from 4.39 million people just before the pandemic. Some 22% of school students are persistently absent from school, which means they're missing more than 10% of lessons. And since COVID, almost half a million have disappeared from the workforce, many of them suffering from mental and physical ill health. Our way of life is worse than it was 15 years ago, perhaps because there have been so many enormous shocks, banks collapsing, an illness that imprisoned us in our homes, the invasion of Ukraine. We are less angry with the government than perhaps we should be. In the case of COVID-19 and Putin, we see the disasters as Exogenous, not the government's fault. However, we may assess the subsequent management of these crises. We cut our leaders slack, knowing it's been harder than normal to fix the roof with floodwater pouring through the front door. But among the many crises, Brexit was an active choice of so many leading politicians, not an accident that happened to them. And Brexit was always going to make us poorer. That was the basic economics of increasing the cost of trading with our most important market, the European single market. It's what I pointed out night after night on ITV as its political editor during the referendum campaign. Sunak, of course, knew this, even though he argued at the time that leaving the EU would unleash the dynamism of the UK. Johnson should have known this. So what has been surprising has been the slowness of successive governments to develop a comprehensive industrial strategy to counterbalance the immediate downward pressure on prosperity. Voters' intolerance of substandard stewardship won't be inexhaustible. Neither my co-author Kish nor I are fatalists. We don't believe decline is inevitable and irreversible. We're realists who believe progress is possible when illusions are abandoned. In this wealthy country bursting with talent, despair is absurd and self-indulgent. Let's see Britain and the world as it is and build from there. One of the reasons we wanted to collaborate is because we have different experiences on which to draw. We are separated generationally and ethnically. I'm a tail end baby boomer and Kish is a millennial. I'm a secular Jew. Kish's family are Hindu. We're united by a love of a country that has provided us with so many opportunities to be the people we want to be. And we're also united by a perception that it's wrong, immoral even, to ignore or minimise the trouble faced by the UK and by much of the West. When we talk about the country being bust, we don't just mean in the narrow financial sense of a government struggling under the weight of its debts and interest payments. The bust is a more generalised breakdown. One manifestation is a kind of borderline personality disorder that touches millions of us and our governing class. On social media and in the mainstream press, we pick needless fights with each other over gender, race, sexuality, faith and successive governments have engaged in cheap squabbles with our closest allies in the European Union, except when faced with the kind of unifying threat that is Vladimir Putin's Russia. We have a mutually destructive tendency to focus on our otherness, to push people away rather than embrace and celebrate difference. Periodically, we suffer from dark despair that will never amount to anything much again. And then we swing to equally irrational euphoria about being so much better than anyone else. I'm not starry-eyed about the past. I was a teenager in the messy 1970s. Inflation that peaked at 25% in 1975. Industrial unrest, power cuts, price controls, an IMF bailout, rubbish uncollected, bodies unburied. But it was also exciting and liberating, hopeful even. Bowie and T Rex challenged gender stereotypes. Bowie's androgyny on the BBC's Top of the Pops was a gender interrogating license to paint nails and wear makeup. Monty Python's surrealist comedy about the Spanish Inquisition and the great philosophers playing football made it cool to be a SWAT. The Sex Pistols rhymed Antichrist with anarchist. Anarchist, and The Clash celebrated the Sandinistas. Ian Jury set his working-class chronicles about teenagers stealing top-shelf mags, his bedsit living dad, and Dickie the Billericky Lothario to music in the great Victorian music hall tradition. Bob Marley led a reverse cultural colonisation. Popular culture was dumbing up, not down. My belief in a better Britain and a better world had both generational and ideological underpinnings. In my comprehensive school in North London's Crouch End, my classmates' parents came from India, East Africa, West Africa, the Caribbean and the Turkish and Greek parts of the island of Cyprus. I was the only Jew in my class. The only time in the classroom I thought I experienced mild anti-Semitism, although perhaps I was being oversensitive, was when my English teacher teased me for not noticing that Michelangelo's David isn't circumcised. I loved that teacher who was gay and out at a time when that took courage. There were only a tiny number of indigenous whites and racism felt absurd as a belief system impossible in our community. I saw and experienced racism outside of school, but I was confident it would be consigned to the dustbin of history. This turned out to be naive. I had a similar confidence in progress with respect to sexual preference and identity. Homosexuality between consenting adults over the age of 21 was legalised in 1967. The toxic stigma attached to coming out hadn't been eliminated, and I felt pride that my sister and a small number of her friends defied conventions to reveal they were lesbian. It was harder for boys to express a preference for other boys, or so it seemed. No boy thought it was anything other than funny to call someone else a perv. That's terrible looking back on it. But Despite the daily reminders of residual prejudice, I was confident the barriers to sexual self-determination were on their way out. History was on the side of progress. The evidence was in front of our eyes that pretty much everything that mattered was getting better. When my mum and dad hired their first colour television, it was one of the most exciting days of my childhood. On that curved, bared screen, I thought I was seeing the whole world properly for the very first time. Every year, there was a new and life-changing technological leap. Video recorders, an electronic ping-pong game. Think of that. Pong that plugged into the television. The Sony Walkman. Every new food was a door to greater cultural understanding. Chinese and Indian, hummus, adona melon and Parma ham. I was living proof of upward social and economic mobility. My parents were second generation immigrants, stock the children of tailors and pleaters, who didn't just become middle class, but they were insistent they'd risen to the upper middle. I had no doubt that my own life chances would be even better than those of mum and dad, even though there was mass unemployment when I left university in the early 1980s. It was also obvious that my school friends, pretty much whatever their backgrounds, were likely to lead more successful and longer lives than the previous generation. This isn't rose-tinted projection from 45 years on. These were the conversations I had as an 18-year-old, and they turned out to be prophetic. All the economic, political, and cultural volatility ushered in huge change. 1979 was a fulcrum, a pivot point. To be clear, it didn't seem inevitable there'd be an overhaul of the state by the most ideologically right-wing government in British history, that of Margaret Thatcher. As a Cockshaw teenager, I knew another less brutal path was available for the UK. Today, I can see the point of Thatcher and of Thatcherism something almost like historical necessity. Unlike the post-Brexit paralysis, she fomented an economic revolution through privatisation, liberalisation of the city, tax simplification and tax reductions that ultimately delivered rewards to many millions of people, although swathes of the country, and especially Scotland, will Never forgive the way she wrecked their industries and livelihoods, even though she was a more divisive prime minister than pretty much any before or since. And even though there was no shortage of conflict on the streets over the closure of coal mines, the smashing of print unions by Rupert Murdoch, her reform of local government taxation, there was no serious challenge to democracy. No sense that losers in elections wouldn't take the rough with a smooth. We were, oddly, a more united nation, even in the very angry divisions over her and her policies. Kish's formative years, were later and calmer in the 90s and noughties and in Kent rather than London. This was the Blair Brown era, which felt stable for him personally and politically. His grandparents had endured the stress of settling here as East African Indian migrants and his parents applied themselves to winning a better life. It's a familiar story of living and working in corner shops, driving forklifts in factories and working in the NHS. Life for them was in London, Luton, South Wales and eventually the prosperous South East. Self-improvement was periodically punctuated by bricks thrown through windows, the hostility of the National Front and uneasiness about whether they'd ever truly belong. Kish's life was much easier. Although he was the token member of an ethnic minority in the communities he inhabited when growing up, he wasn't ever uneasy about fitting in. He had the love and support of his mum, who chose to be at home in his younger years, in an era where single-income families were still something that was possible for many. His preoccupations were the same as those of his school friends. The self-interrogation was whether Man United, Arsenal, or the newly rich Chelsea would win the league, whether he'd be able to have a new pay-as-you-go mobile phone, and, more important, but perhaps less urgent, if he had any idea what he wanted to do with his life. For most of Kish's friends, the life choice took a while to reveal itself, but having the freedom to choose was an extremely... Extraordinary privilege, which his parents and grandparents didn't have. Britain was much more at ease with itself than today. Beckham, Britpop, and the Spice Girls were the UK's advert to the world. They represented a new generation, but were no threat to the status quo, co opted as they willingly were into a monarchy loving patriotism, always smiling, tolerant, and inclusive. Global economic change, disinflation from a rapidly industrializing China, rampant consumerism made our money go further. It made us richer. The internet meant that a whole world of entertainment and distraction was increasingly at Kish's fingertips and was generally considered more interesting than the steady dull progress of a three-term Labour government. Political and social revolution didn't feel a sensible option for him. The big stuff was under control. Kish, was interested in politics, though, because unlike many of his peers, he was a nerd and proud. After the initial excitement about the election of Tony Blair in the 1997 landslide, this is Kish's earliest political memory, only the war in Iraq really stood out as a moment of political significance that truly punctuated the consciousness of Kish's circle of comfortably off young people. I, my late wife, Sean Bazmi, and my then five-year-old son, Max, were among 1.5 million people on the streets of London protesting against a looming invasion that would be ordered by Bush and Blair. Our shouted voices were unheard by Tony Blair or indeed by the majority of ministers and MPs. At the time, a majority of British people were opposed to the invasion unless and until there was a so-called second resolution at the United Nations that legitimised the military action, a resolution that never materialised. This was an occasion when our representative democracy failed. But like the 1980s, there was still a clear national consensus that our flawed system was superior to the alternatives. It was the banking crisis. That shook Kish's unspoken assumption that economic progress would be seamless. Until then, he and the majority of his friends took for granted that Britain was on the up, although in his rural and affluent southeast neighbourhood, Labour was never flavour of the month, and rising anxiety about immigration saw a younger Nigel Farage come to prominence. Britain's constitution, uncodified though not unwritten as the common view would insist, was remarkably robust throughout. Our patch and mend liberal democracy remained relatively free from challenge, even though millions of British people didn't for almost a generation in the 80s and 90s secure their preferred government. Participation in elections fell, however, from 76% in 1979 to a still legitimising 71% in 1997. There were small numbers who supported extreme groups of the left and right, but debate was largely about how to strengthen rather than dismantle the foundations of the UK's democracy. In fact, the one earthquake of the 1980s, the split in the Labour Party to yield the Social Democratic Party, was explicitly manufactured to give a new home to political moderates, those for whom revolutionary change was totally anathema. The greatest achievement of the SDP was arguably to force the Labour Party subsequently to remake itself in the SDP's image. There might not have been Blair without it. The British way was to complain, often very rudely, about the government and its ministers, but not to shake the political infrastructure that they rested on. There was a lot to complain about. After Margaret Thatcher's administration was elected in 1979, unemployment rose to a peak of almost 12% in 1984. That's three times where it is today. And the numbers of children living in poverty increased from around 15% to 28% by 1990. An extraordinary number of children living in poverty. The whole communities wrecked by the closure of mines and steel plants, these were wretched times. But across the world, democracy was on the march because if anyone examined life in the big autocracies, they saw grinding poverty in much of China and bleak corruption in the Soviet Union. Democracy was conspicuously better than the alternatives. And somehow the Victorian male and public school dominated British system spawned a state school educated woman who trained to be a chemist as the most influential prime minister of the second half of the 20th century. Change was Possible. Thatcher was brutal in consigning heavy industries to the dustbin of history. She was simplistic in her conviction that the private sector always manages better than the public sector. She castrated trade unions and empowered corporate leaders to pay themselves however much they liked. But she engineered economic rehabilitation. I refused to see it at the time, but I am persuaded that her privatisations, her tax cuts and her labour market reforms helped to stem the UK's economic decline, though, and this is important... That was only because the country was part of Europe's common market and then helped to turn the common market into the European Union. It was precisely because a more competitive United Kingdom had access to the European single market, a huge, seamless market that Thatcher and her officials played a leading role in designing, that the country enjoyed all those years of growing prosperity from 1992 to 2007. It's part of the current British tragedy, or perhaps comedy, that the influential politicians on the right wing of the Tory party who seek a return to the true Thatcherism willfully misunderstand that her policies were only as successful as they were because British exporters had cost-free access to the largest market on the planet, that of the EU. Everything changed, and for the worse, after the 2007-08 to banking crisis. To be clear, it wasn't the financial crisis alone that ended economic progress, but there were other factors lurking beneath the surface. But this was the turning point. It is why Kiss's generation of millennials are often considered the last to have still had belief in the system as they rose to working age. It had worked for Kish's father, a first-generation migrant who came to the country age 16. He spent his weekends in his father's corner shop in South Wales, reading the newspapers they sold to learn English. That paid off. Three years at a local comprehensive saw him win a grant to study medicine, setting him on the path to a secure and fulfilling career as a doctor. It's an analogous story of social mobility through state education to that of my parents. Growing up as he did along way from the devastated communities of the Midlands and North, Kish's path as well felt unobstructed, though perhaps presumptuous. He would make his parents proud by working hard at school, going to university and getting a decently paid and secure job. He always had the expectation of buying his own home one day. He he was simply reflecting, however, the consensus of his peer group. Blair, and especially as Chancellor Gordon Brown, were ending boom and bust, they insisted they didn't see how reckless lending and investing by the banks would lead to the mother of all bus till it was far too late. It's always the clash between hope and reality that brings important change. As the loyal son of an economist, I've always seen the biggest drivers of change as dashed or disappointed expectations, typically when we don't become as rich as we'd expected or we become poorer than we feared. So much of what sets us against each other is explicable in that way, from Brexit to the current obsession with culture wars. And the longer the malaise endures, the less we can be confident that the extremists won't win. One important way of seeing that vote to leave the EU is not as reinforcing British liberal democracy, but as just one step away from challenging that liberal democracy. Millions of those who wanted Brexit, as my book WTF explained, were rejecting a political and economic system that wasn't working for them. They could have blamed Westminster. In many ways, it would have been more rational to blame Westminster, but that was a step too far. Instead, they blamed Brussels. If, however, successive Brexit-supporting prime ministers don't deliver on their promises of what leaving the EU would deliver in terms of higher living standards, who will voters blame next? For Kitchener's generation, the post-crash world hasn't rewarded them for their study and graft quite as they've been led to expect. Owning a home is out of reach for many, jobs are insecure and often badly paid, starting a family feels like an expensive risk rather than an assumed rite of passage. Their trust in the system is shaken, just as inflation is back with a vengeance and living standards are falling more than at any time in modern recorded memory. Absolute poverty, the impossibility of heating a home or eating properly is a reality for 11 million people. All this when government, too, has been inadequate, perceived as morally absent under Boris Johnson and incompetent under Truss. So what on earth do we do next? The most important trend of the last 20 years has been a collapse in the growth rate and growth potential, the underlying growth rate from nearly 3% a year from 1992 to 2008 to not far off 1% a year today. There's been an associated collapse in the growth of productivity of output per hour worked. That's a reduction in our capacity to get richer year by year. We are, in the branding of the Resolution Foundation, a stagnation nation. To return to Brexit, the communities in the Midlands and North that backed it and swung the vote felt both abandoned by the establishment of London and resentful of the relative success of the South. Stagnation, lacklustre prospects and worsening inequalities are the three-cornered hat, the tricorn of those who can't and won't put up with it any longer. For those of us who weren't born and raised in a town or city that was once a workshop of the world and is now a place of insecure, low-skilled service employment, it may be hard to imagine the psychological impact of seeing the lavish lifestyles of fellow citizens a couple of hundred miles down the road in London. For a few, it may induce hunger to get out, but it also propagates resentment and despair. How the other 0.1% live is on display every second of the day on any smartphone. Social media magnifies the polar opposite reactions. I can do better and I give up. Boris Johnson was onto something when he fought the 2019 general election on the promise of levelling up the left behind regions. But that, too, has been an exercise in disappointing hopes because levelling up has barely yet had any kind of meaningful impact. In other words, the power of dashed expectations is yet to fully play out. What will happen, for example, when those who blame the EU for the poverty of their prospects... The dispossessed of the Midlands and the North, the frequently white, older, male, former members of the working class see that Brexit hasn't rescued them. Will they accept that Brussels wasn't their enemy or will they join with the many Tory MPs who are engaged in a campaign of abuse against an imaginary pro-EU ruling class? The so-called blob accused of sabotaging an independent Britain's magnificent future. The stakes are high. Unless there is a widespread acceptance that Brexit was always going to make us poorer for years, if not necessarily forever, and that's a price worth paying, then there is a danger that significant numbers of people will turn against our way of governing. The longer that elected governments are perceived by the dispossessed to be failing them, and the longer the hope gap between North and South persists, the greater the danger that we'll see more extremism and even rejection of liberal democracy in what many would regard as their home of liberal democracy. If you think British people can never upset the apple cart, just observe that almost half the people of Scotland still want their nation to separate politically and constitutionally from the United Kingdom, even as the party that supposedly represents their views, the Scottish National Party, has been enduring its worst ever internal crisis. The separatist movement derives its momentum not just from Scotland's history as an independent nation, but also from That tricorn I've mentioned of inequality, stagnation and dashed hopes of improvement from a status quo. So if economics underlies the threats to how we live, only economics can save us. This requires us first to evaluate whether the traditional economic model involving the distribution of the fruits of growth to improve living standards of the poorest by money transfers as well as investments in schools and hospitals is still available to us. It means assessing whether as a mature economic nation, it's plausible that we can return to the growth rates of the 1990s and early years of the millennium. I pointed out in two previous books, How Do We Fix This Mess and WTF, that a significant proportion of historic GDP growth and the UK's productivity recovery was an illusion. It was a mirage generated by the financial innovation of banks and hedge funds, which they claimed was productivity enhancing, but was in fact an exercise in covering up risk and therefore in extracting rent or profit in an unsustainable way. A significant increment of growth in national income and associated tax revenues was therefore unsustainable. In practice, what the bankers were doing was hiding poison, not detoxifying it. Murder always comes out. The UK does have a world-class banking, insurance and financial services industry. It would be perilous to denigrate it because we have too few Global leading industries. But the best we can hope for now is that it retains its competitive position. It can't and won't revert to the role it served from Thatcher to Brown as being the dynamo of British productivity and prosperity. By contrast, another damaged contributor to the fall in productivity growth is more fixable and is in the process of being partly fixed. That's the impact of George Osborne's austerity imposed when he became chancellor after 2010. The most serious damage that he wreaked in respect of growth potential was to cut investment spending by government from 3.2% of GDP in 2010 to 1.3% of GDP in 2013. A really dramatic cut. In the words of one senior member of the current government, these cuts, when combined with how businesses reduced investment in response to Brexit, have done severe and lasting harm to the country's prospects. The example of France shows how increased investment in infrastructure translates into higher productivity and prosperity, and that the reverse holds too. Public transport in too many British towns and cities is antiquated. British roads are among the most congested in Europe, Also, the rupture to vital public services being caused by our crumbling schools and hospitals, the result of capital budgets that were slashed by Osborne, is causing both economic and social harm. Since the vote to leave the EU in 2016, investment has fallen by £340 billion in total, compared to what it would otherwise have reached if previous trends had persisted. This is the estimate of the Office for Budget Responsibility, the government's own forecaster. The fall in investment is one reason why the OBR calculates Brexit will leave the UK economy 4% 4% smaller than it would otherwise have been. The linked contributor to the Brexit-induced shrinkage is the increase in costs for businesses trading with the European Union's single market, which reduces the volume of trade. By the way, none of this is cause for defeatism, whatever you may think we're saying. We are a rich, resourceful country. We may be a small boat on a huge economic ocean, but we have a rudder and a sail. The questions we'll look at later in this book are, how do we improve productivity and growth? What's the best outcome for which we can hope? And if growth can't be returned to precisely what it was, how do we share the proceeds more fairly? The corollaries are about the optimal structure of public services and how we make sure that those with least have at least enough for a dignified life. There's another question no politician of the mainstream, left or right, wants to touch with a barge pole, even though it is central to everything. That's how much more those who are wealthiest and on highest incomes, and even those on middling incomes, should contribute to those at the bottom. The point is that even with the tax burden at its highest level since the 1940s and on course to reach 38% of national income by 2027, our public services are in deep trouble and the poorest can't feed themselves much can be done to improve the equity and economic efficiency of taxation. The structure of tax in the UK is byzantine and suboptimal. At different rate thresholds, it actually leaves people worse off when they earn more by withdrawing various credits and benefits. The fiscal climate for productivity-enhancing research and investment leaves so much to be desired. It's naive to assume that those with most income and wealth and those with enough can't contribute more, though not even Keir Starmer and the Labour Party is prepared right now to moot a further rise in the tax burden. It's not the British way to talk about tax rises, as a distinguished former editor of the FT put it to me many years ago when I was the political editor there. This is a curiosity, because even at its historically elevated level, the UK tax takers' share of GDP is five percentage points lower than the average for the EU's 14 core older and richer members, and a couple of percentage points less than the average for the other six Big, rich country members of the G7 group of big economies. Don't take my word. This is the OBR's analysis. In the context of the rich West as a whole, the UK's tax burden is not perilously high, or perilously uncompetitive. But any government has to be wary when setting taxes that they don't act as a further drag on economic growth at a time when growth is so low. Because unless there's a resumption in the growth rate, or something else were to give, the UK would be in dire straits. Here is the nutshell of why, as a sovereign nation, our economy is in such a perilous state. Why we could go bust, even if Britain is not there yet. As I've said, after all the economic shocks of recent years, the underlying growth rate of national income, the growth in the economy consistent with its productive capacity, the growth that doesn't fuel inflation, is probably around 1% a year, down from that 3% before the 2008 crash. Productivity growth, the increase in output generated for each hour worked, or by each person, has fallen even more and is currently flatter than a pancake. Per contra, government debt has trebled as a share of national income over the past 15 years. It's almost 100% of GDP and rising. Later in the book, I'll look at the government's finances in detail and explain why they are more fragile than other comparable nations. And I'll examine the reckless choice of successive chancellors, to borrow by issuing what's known as index linked bonds or gilts, which means the interest rate paid by the Treasury rises and is rising when inflation rises. But the most important uncertainty for the UK is around where the neutral or natural rate of interest will settle after this recent surge in inflation. This neutral rate is the real or inflation-adjusted rate of interest that keeps the economy operating at full capacity while inflation is stable. It's the baseline for the interest rate that all of us would expect to pay over the long term. This natural interest rate was lower than 1% for a good decade until a combination of the viral pandemic and shifting global and national politics, which I'll explore later, reduced productivity capacity and stimulated inflation. This natural interest rate may yet settle back to 1% or less, but if it doesn't, the government, all of us, would be in deep Trouble. If the interest rate the government is expected to pay for years and years ahead were to be higher than the growth potential of the economy, that's currently around 1%, as I've said, then the public sector's interest costs would always increase faster than tax revenues. And that would bring the risk of the UK becoming trapped in a debt spiral of government debts rising exponentially. Worse still, just the widespread fear of that debacle would be enough to deter investors from lending to the British government. And even with the power of the Bank of England to magically create money, the government's ability to sustain vital public services and prevent a collapse in living standards would be undermined. This is why much of the rest of the book is focused on that life or death challenge of improving productivity and the growth potential of the economy. It is why Kish and I are determined to view the prospect of artificial intelligence driving a new industrial revolution as a lifeline, as the best chance we have to increase the growth rate of the economy well above that natural rate of interest. So long as the risks of artificial intelligence are containable, and they are serious, and I'll analyse them later, they're preferable to a possible sovereign debt crisis that would lead to such savage cuts in public services that George Osborne's painful austerity would look like gentle thrift. We can't go back to that.